Welcome to this episode of DQ Chats, brought to you by Drama Queensland. My name is Stephanie Tudor and I'm the President of Drama Queensland. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded on, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. I wish to thank them for their long and rich history of storytelling and acknowledge them as first artists, the first storytellers and the first creators of culture on this land. Welcome back to our wonderful chat with Lucas Stibbard about all things Boy Girl Wall. We are going to pick right back where we left off, revealing some insights into the creative process and some wonderful advice for teachers embarking on the journey of teaching this great text. We hope you enjoy. One of the really great conversations that I have with students is simply about the use of the chalk and how clear that is. And is, is there, was there anything about that particular production choice of using the chalk and not having lots of sets and things. And I, mean, I know that students are really interested in that, that, yeah. that idea. Well, I guess the flippant answer is budget. Um, that it really was <laughs> about cheap. It was about being cheap. Like literally also the original version of the show and the, the one that you're seeing in, in that video um, is the original Sue Banner theater that doesn't exist anymore in Metro arts in town. Mm. And I was obsessed with the fact that that's a room and I guess this comes back to transformation and, and making the invisible visible and stuff as well and all the stuff that we'll be talking about in terms of ritual and understanding. That room is a black room um, that's covered in really interesting things that have all just been painted black, which, yeah. you know, in theatre we understand mm -hmm. is code for don't look at me. Yeah. Um, but it's not actually invisible. It's just painted black. Um, so I very intentionally went around and I um, outlined every single thing that you weren't meant to look at in white chalk in the huh. room. Um, so to yet again, it's that don't look at it, but look at it, but don't look at it, but look at it in the same way that the, the story is full of, I'm going to break the fourth wall, then I'm going to actually drop into a character and make you feel sad in character. Then I'm going to remind you that you're actually just watching me pretend to be someone else. Then I'm going to talk to you again about it. Then I'm going to actually make a joke about the fact that I made a joke about it. It's that, <laughs> that those constant layers. Um, the the chalk in itself and its, its intentionality um, came about literally from that treatment that I was writing when we were pitching the show and that I then pitched to the group, which was like, how are we going to do this? How, how are we going to do it? And the original idea was that um, a man in a suit walks into a space with a briefcase, opens up the briefcase and it's empty except for a piece of chalk. And then he wow. draws some, and then he talk, starts telling the story and he starts diagrammatically drawing stuff. Um, I had that, that time that I dropped out of uni the first time I'd actually been at um, QCA studying uh, filmmaking and a little bit of digital design and illustration. So I, I kind of had a background in that stuff and an interest in it and I like drawing. So it was a way for me to get those into it, but I also love chalk and talk as a, as a, as a medium. Um, I, I think um, done well, it's one of the most entertaining things on earth is watching one person and the ability to draw actually make things come alive in front of you in a really simple and tangible way. Mm. Um, or it's the most boring thing on earth, depending on how you're doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, but also, yet again, going back to the, the, what we are talking before about the, um, you know, kind of dead technologies, we don't use chalk anymore um, in classrooms. But mm. I, I think the idea of wanting to make a thing that was kind of like a lecture was definitely part of what we were doing. So wanting to have all of the trappings of that style, but without yeah. itself. 
um, but the archaic versions of them because that was more fun. And also made them, it was strange making, like I was actually estranging yes. version of it that would be whiteboards. Um, the chalk was literally that thing of going, if he talks about something, he draws it. And the original idea was to have far more of those bits of kind of hidden cardboard across the room as well. So that in mm. the black room with the things painted black that you assumed were just parts of the wall, you could draw things and then take them off again. Eventually mm. that came down to just being Dave the computer. Um, being allowed to be a thing that can actually talk and puppet and that he gets drawn on the and then um and the cheapest gag in the show which is the fact that i had some apple stickers so the fact that dave actually has a hidden apple sticker on the back of him the entire time so that when i turn it around he actually becomes a macbook um <laughs> it's, it's seriously it is the cheapest gag in the show and it gets a laugh and it's always been that thing to the point where part of the rules of the show is to recognize that the show is the show and that you're performing it. And so if something happens to talk about it, like if there's a good laugh or a cough or someone sneezes, you say, bless you, or if a phone goes off, you actually have that moment of intentionally giving somebody shit for what they've done. Um, my favorite one of those is the night that someone famously did actually answer their phone and get up and leave from the bar. <gasps> when they came back, I oh was my gosh. like, Drew, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, it was actually the babysitter. And I was like, I can't argue with that fair play. We make jokes about that at the beginning of the show. <laughs> It was the babysitter. You are more than welcome. Um, or <laughs> wow. like a really good laugh, which I always love. Like it's worth pointing those things out when they happen. But the um, the Dave has always been a, a big laugh. So being mm. able to turn around and go, I can't believe that after me running around for 45 to 60 minutes at this point, you're laughing at a sticker on the back of a piece of cardboard <laughs> to the same amount as me working really hard to make an intense series of jokes pay off. That's unfair. <laughs> but at the same time, then pointing that out and then you get a laugh at the fact that it's pointed out. And so the, the metacognition of the show continues to kind of roll around. Yeah. Um, but making the invisible visible, which is what the entire thematic is of the show and this idea yeah. of transformation comes down to actually outlining it with chalk. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I also like that idea that you say about making the invisible visible with the whole background and their context and how they got to that yeah, moment. Absolutely. And, you know, because we see, as you said before, in a rom-com, you see them meet cute, say lock eyes in a grocery store and then the story starts. Yes, absolutely. But we, we don't start as blank canvases in that moment. We come with Baggage. all of the invisible. Tons of yeah. it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I think that, that is. Before. So yeah, that. That form and narrative, that's a really lovely meeting again. Yeah, absolutely, um, which is partially intentional, partially just I think, you know, you, you make for the philosophy that you have. And mm -hmm. as an angry little Marxist, you know, you know, I believe that people need to understand where things come from, otherwise they don't value them. So yeah. it's, it's incredibly important to me that we actually think that way about things so that, you know, we understand that, you know, I, I do it a lot talking to students about um understanding the cost of a phone isn't just the, the physical cost of it and it isn't just the um, the environmental cost of it in terms of the fact that when it becomes waste, the, you know, the, the terrible chemicals inside this continue to destroy or the fact that we're strip mining the world for incredibly rare metals to make them. It's also the fact that they're actually developed in um, a series of factory cities in China that have nets around them because it's so miserable living there that people throw themselves out of windows. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's that thing. I'm not under prepared for this on a Saturday morning. No, but just, you know, know what you're doing when you're doing stuff. Be aware of it. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's really important that we do that more often than we do because and I think particularly with art in this country and possibly one of the reasons that the Invisible Made Visible is part of the show and why effort 
and the, the visible effort of watching somebody do this and produce it in front of you is there mm. is actually me very forcibly in a Marxist sense, actually going, this is work. Work yeah. takes effort. Effort should be remunerated. Um, so often um, we undervalue art in our society because we don't consider it work and we consider doing it to be, um, because it is a privilege and it is a privilege to do, not necessarily as worthy of remuneration as other things. So, you know, it's the thing about, well, you know, you enjoy what you do, so you don't need to be paid for it well. <laughs> and it's the thing you go, well, actually, no, it's work. And, you know, if I am going to sacrifice uh, time in my life that I will never get back for what I'm doing, um, I, I demand to be paid for it. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's that balance. It's also why I don't really enjoy um, dress-up parties because they feel like work. Um, so, you know, it's that thing of going, no, if you want me to come to your 1950s theme party, pay me. <laughs> We'll remember that for next time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I would do costumes. <laughs> so you talked a lot about, you know, yeah, having to work and run around the stage um, and you fill the space um, amazingly and make it, you know, come alive to the multiple different places and times and the flashbacks and flash forwards. But you have this beautiful um, underscoring and use of music and sound throughout the whole production. How did that come about? Was it organic in the space? Did you start with one piece of music and then go, oh, that's a good place for it? Um, because it's all um, composed for the show. Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting. I think it comes from the filmic thing. Um, there is a there is a an original score to the show and then there mm. is a soundtrack to the show. Um, the soundtrack was actually written into the script so yeah. um, like things like the Katrina and the Waves sting um, of I'm Walking on Sunshine yeah. um, was Matt. We, Matt and I were looking for two, two jokes that were finding a way to be able to successfully communicate very quickly a concept that also gave me a rest for a second. Um, <laughs> and Walking on Sunshine is not the restful one, but it's the first one because then it pays <laughs> off as a second gag. So Walking on Sunshine is me dancing. But trying to actually yet again... Um, it's the synecdoche, it's the little part for the whole. And in that moment, what we were trying to do is encapsulate. But also we loved um, television comedy at the time had actually just started doing a lot of this stuff. Um, Scrubs was great at doing cutaway um, really fast gags per minute. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to find a way to do that on uh, on stage. Um, and so the challenge was to go, how can we flash to somewhere else without doing a flash to white with the sound, with the moment and then flashing back. Mm. And sound is a great intercut there to be able to use that. Um, so we were using it that way to be able to do it, to kind of scissor into what was going on and then flash back out of it. Um, the second of those jokes, which is the most expensive joke in the entire show is don't cry out loud, um, which Matt chose. Um, and I think he's genius. Um, it's the most expensive joke because uh, the estate of the person that wrote it actually asks for, I think it's 0 0.05 of the gross of the show every time we do the show for that joke. So it's a, it's a, it's incredibly expensive joke, but it's also worth it because it's 60 to 90 seconds where I get to stand still and do absolutely nothing, <laughs> which I think is really good. It's worth it. It's totally, it is. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, it's a small but large investment in my own sanity and health. Um, the rest of the music though came about, um, I'm incredibly fortunate to um, be married to a, an incredibly talented um, person who happens to be a, a choreographer and a clown and musician. And so um, Nerida, who had been involved since the beginning as an escapist in this work, 
Um, and we'd always been interested in yet again exposing uh, what you see throughout the work. So uh, seeing the musician as opposed to having the music hidden is also an mm. intentional part of it in that if you actually look, Nerida is actually lurking over in the corner of the stage during this entire yeah. period in a in a kind of an area. Um, in the eventual versions of the show, uh, the bite and stuff, she was actually on scaffolding, sitting above everything, looking down oh. at the show. Um, right. But yet she, she had uh, played around and we also, um, we wanted to limit it. So we limited it to kind of dinky toy instruments. So it's a chromatic 25-key toy piano, mm. a glockenspiel, um, an electronic drum kit, and a CD player. Oh, and a, and a ruler, uh, and a metal ruler on the side of a desk um, is what creates the soundtrack to the show. Um, so all of the, the sound is cued live intentionally mm. throughout the show, and you can actually see it interact. Um, on a good night during that show, um, when I'm sitting in the pocket of the show, like musicians talk about that idea of kind of yeah. sitting in the pocket of it, um, the two of us can sync it up to the point where I can be listening to the phrases while I'm talking so that I can actually finish on the end of a phrase so that I can actually use the phrases to actually full stop or counterpoint or, um, or finish the point of a moment or a scene in the show. Um, it was composed out of things that Nerida had noodled about on for years on piano uh, and things that she'd loved. And so we are kind of identified up and said, well, we need a theme. And we also wanted, because there's no uh, other way of denoting or connoting space inside the mm. show, we wanted ways to be able to situate you very quickly. And so the lighting is color coded blue and pink. Yeah. Um, in, in a very intentional and ironic binary that we don't believe in, but that is actually just very useful for the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the, the sound does the same thing in terms of once you've got those themes, they're hooks that situate you back in mm -hmm. things. Like the consider theme tells you that we've lifted into the science part of the show that is chalk and talk, which is that burn, 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 that goes behind those things, um, which also feels a little bit like a 1960s and um, 1960s to 80s uh, informational video, yes. uh, like the kind of ones that you used to see at school or things as well. So that they they, they sit in that kind of sciencey world, yeah. and then there's the the, the and then um, there's the theme for the wall, and there's the theme for the boy and the girl, and they're also intentionally placed in there to help you situate so that even on a subconscious level if you're a bit lost in where we are and you can't notice that i'm standing on the side of this the in on the if you can't do it proximically by looking at the floor and seeing that i'm standing in the area that says boy and you can't do it visually because it's blue and understand that symbol maybe the sound will get you there um you know, <laughs> we're just constantly reinforcing those things because we don't have any of the other things that you would normally have inside a set mm. to actually help with those things um i think also i really liked um I'm just going to tangent for two seconds, which is I love um, Shakespeare and the fact that Shakespeare doesn't have sets, but that it actually just declared what was there and that yes. you fill it in with your imagination, like by just going, we're in a forest now, deal with it. And then you go, oh, right, it's trees. Oh, I can see trees. Um, yeah. I think Suspending your disbelief. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but taking it beyond suspension into actually um, the constant oscillation between going, I know there's no fucking trees. I know yeah. there isn't but then enjoying the fact that I'm seeing them, but then enjoying the fact that I'm not seeing them. And yeah. it's, it's actually, the, it's actually the, the balance between those two things that I think is really important. Um, Belvoir a few years ago had for their symbol a chair with a broom and a bucket on it that said this is a horse. And I think mm, they were missing yes. the main point, which was that it's a horse, but it's also a bucket and a chair, a chair. and a broom. And I mm -hmm. think it's, the, it's actually the, 
it's the magic happens in the tension between that thing, not in saying that it is the other thing, but in knowing that it's not. Oh, careful. You're getting close to contemporary theatre again. I know, right? Um, <laughs> and I think that, that was actually kind of the idea with um, all of the show is, is wanting to constantly remind you that it's a show and then get you caught up and then remind you that it's a show and get you caught up. Yeah. But the music itself um, was out of things that we loved uh, and things that uh, uh, Nerida and I, I both bonded over a love of like, you know, Satie and the, the Junipeds and those, those kind of beautiful noodling piano medleys and stuff that you can mm-hmm. play but actually explore. Nerida actually plays a version of a, one of the Satie uh, Junipeds inside the show um, that dun, 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 is actually um, from him. But, but what happens when you take something that's meant to be played on a beautifully expressive kind of like, you know, giant multi-keyed, multi-octave <laughs> piano and you bring it down to like two octaves on a hammer, on, a, on a, like a tin hammer piano. Yes. It becomes this other kind of dinky thing, but is intentionally kind of like a, a version of the idea, not the idea itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, even before the show starts, it's, it's a pity it's not in, um, and it's just honestly the rights, um, the, 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 the music inside the show in both versions of it. And, and then in the educational version, it's interesting. And I should talk to this now very quickly. Um, inside the educational version of the show, due to licensing rights, um, the Walking on Sunshine and Don't Cry Out Loud aren't mm. there, replaced by royalty-free music quite simply because I cannot afford the, <laughs> the huge and ruinous version of it that would be if I actually um, had that as uh, the, music, like, the, the, show, the, the yeah. music inside the show on video. Performing it live is one thing, and APRA for that is actually not as ruinous, but once it's videoed, it becomes incredibly expensive. It's like there's a, there's a, there's a Prince joke inside the show that ideally pays off with the beginning of Raspberry Beret that yeah. can't happen. Um, that is also uh, like a, another pop culture reference that goes inside the show um, that's not there. I, I, I encourage any teacher who's teaching it to actually quietly and, and with their class say, look, you won't Just be play it. You won't you won't be um, you won't be uh, tested on this, but I would encourage you to go and actually look up Walking on Sunshine, Don't Cry Out Loud and Raspberry Beret and actually imagine where they go because I think they, they are another level to kind of the references that are being used inside the show to tell stories, mm-hmm. given that the entire thing is a series of moving symbols and, like, the body is text, sound is text as well inside the show is really important because it's, it's actually doing a lot of heavy lifting symbolically. Yeah. Um, which is what I guess we started this question with around the idea of the purpose and intentionality behind all of mm. that. Um, which was actually doing the heavy lifting for me a lot of the time. And the fact that good rom-coms have amazing soundtracks. like Very true. Yeah. You know a meet cute or you know a moment's coming by the swell of the music. I mean, to go back to When Harry Met Sally too, um, it's full of When Harry, uh, uh, Harry Connick Jr. music. Um, These beautiful versions of, oh, for those of you who are uh, too young for this one, um, Harry Connick Jr. was like Michael Bublé, but for the 90s. <laughs> Just basically, uh, I feel who, like that's an insult to um, Harry Connick Jr. I feel yeah. like he can stand on his own. Uh, he's literally doing his best impression of Frank Sinatra. So, you know, well, it's all theft anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, you know, to every generation, there is born somebody who will be a crooner. And <laughs> currently, we're in the Buble. And I imagine, you know, 20 years from now, there will be some other person. Well, it's getting close to Christmas. Buble must be ready to come out. Oh, here we go. It is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. 
for another year. So things to look forward to. Yeah. Um, does that kind of help with the music though? No, it does. And I think um, I think it's a really lovely way um, for students to kind of engage with that um, through the show because I think sometimes we ignore the use of music. We kind mm-hmm. of just see it as an, a, an afterthought. And I think sometimes when students are doing work, they go, oh, I'm just going to chuck the music in at the end. Yeah. Whereas it's clear that it wouldn't have worked like that for Boy Girl Wall. It is so layered and complex and involved in the storytelling that it needs to be there from the beginning or even early on. It's not just nothing in the show is an afterthought. And I think that's... Uh, that comes down to the devising process too, which was actually... Um... Outside of the fact that it's a traditional writing process where um, you know Matt and I plotted it out based upon the story that I'd written and then I wrote a draft and then Matt wrote a draft and then we wrote backwards and forwards. Um, quick tip with that, um, what we did was instead of actually being smart about it and using um, the, the, the function that would allow you to comment or track changes, we made a rule that there was no track changes, basically that you could go in and edit whatever you wanted and then if the other person couldn't find it, it was probably a good edit. Nah. Um, although then what we would do is there'd be joke wars where he'd take out a joke that I'd written, put in a joke that he thought was funnier, and then I'd take that joke out again and put back in the original <laughs> joke and stuff. So it just became this kind of <laughs> competition. Um, then when it got to the floor, um, and part of the contemporary practice behind it in the devising part of it was then actually um, uh, very having everybody in the room from the beginning. So Nerida as, as one of the co-devisors of the work and the fact that we all identified as, as kind of like devisors behind the work rather than actually getting into other roles. Like there is no director. What there was, was five outside eyes and an Mm. inside eye that were kind of looking after the way that it would work and looking after the topography and movement of the show and how it communicated. And, and there was no dramaturg. There were five dramaturgs, um, but then within that, there was a group of people who had very specific um, kind of like skill sets, like Jonathan Oxlade and Sarah Winter are designers. And so they have an aesthetic eye to what's going on and are actually feeding into that. Um, Keith Clark is actually a lighting designer, but like most technicians, he's seen more theatre than everybody else and therefore probably has some very good ideas and opinions about it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Nerida is a choreographer, but she also has interests in music and movement. Um, and kind of then within it, I was kind of doing it from the inside as well, but also kind of directing. And then Matt was looking after it from a writing point of view from the outside and a dramaturgical and a directorial view, but also just in terms of the overall performance of it. So kind of destabilizing those kind of hierarchies behind the way traditional theater is made, because frankly, it wasn't built to be a commercial model. Um, it was meant to be much more like a traditional model of the way theatre started, which was a group of people getting together and telling a story in a collaborative way and using those collaborative and devised models, actually wanting to have, you know, open and clear communication and trust with each other, recognition of each other's experience, but then also the ability to speak into anything that you felt was really important to us, which then led to a, a style of making and working that meant that we all had to be there. Um, so it was um, parallel processes working rather than what you were saying before about students going in at the end, I'll whack the music on. Yeah. It was that the music was being layered and composed from day one of rehearsals. Yeah. In the same way that the lighting was being layered and composed from day one of rehearsals. Mm. So that all of these things are being honoured because they're all incredibly rich text. We tend to actually kind of honour the, the, the visual and the spoken text in terms of design the body and space topographically and choreographically mm. and um, 
the spoken word as kind of the primary text inside theatre in the in the traditional sense. Yeah, I was much yet again to get contemporary with it. I was interested in kind of dethroning some of those as much as possible by bringing up emphasis on other things, at least in the way that they're used. I really like uh, what music can do. Mm. I don't think it's important yet again. The little Marxist in me was there trying to go, but I also want you to not take it for granted. I want you to see what it is and I want you to see it being made and I want you to see what it does to you when it happens. So like pointing out the fact that when I play sad music, you'll start to feel sad because (laughs) unless you're a psychopath or a sociopath, in which case you won't feel anything unless you want to and good luck to you. Um, But, you know, I'll also be watching to see whether or not you yawn when I yawn because that's another giveaway. But the, um, you know, as social creatures, we're good at actually picking up on these cues. Most psychopaths are great at faking them. So, you know, it works for everybody. Um, one of the other things that we used to do that's uh, in, in the touring version of the show was um, all of the music before the show starts was very intentionally chosen to be kind of cool, fun, romantic music that would play even as you were walking in. I've always been one of those people that believes in door to door in terms of the fact that your engagement with the show starts before the lights go down. Um, Poster design was always incredibly important to me. The visual aspect of the show, um, the way that the logo was written, everything about it had to be folded into because that's your first touches and experiences of what's going to happen to you. You want those to actually feed into what it's eventually going to be. You know how trailers fail at that constantly and promise you something that they don't deliver? I wanted to find absolutely the opposite to that. I wanted to find you know, something that the whole spoke to itself in a way that was really um, folded in. So um, I would stand up the back of the theatre um, with uh, Keith, who would um, run the lights, uh, and the the music before the show would kind of be DJed from up there, mm. and over power to Nerida, who'd run the, the sound for the show, and we'd kind of get everybody into the right mood and get it all happening, and then very intentionally, when we knew that we were about to start the show, we'd play "Take on Me" by Aha, uh-huh, and <laughs> suddenly everybody would start singing, and it would bind the audience together. Uh, into a, a unit of people that were there to do one thing commonly together as a group of people rather than a, uh, a group of individuals sitting in the dark yeah. themselves, which is the other kind of, you know, it's another one of the hypocrisies of theatre and film that I'm fascinated by in that you don't do it by yourself. You do it with a group of people, but then you feel like you're doing it individually because you're sitting in the dark by yourself, but you're actually bound with other people around you. So wanting to point out that uh, contradiction as well in terms of in the, the whole thing is contradictions. That's another one of them to actually want to talk about. Yeah. That and the fact that it's just a great song and there's nothing more fun <laughs> See to a group of people hit falsetto when the chorus starts and it gets to those really high notes. Um, and then laugh at themselves for doing so, which is a great way to bind people. Um, uh, mm. In the same way that the beginning of the show starts with a warm-up act like stand-up does in terms of the fact that you hear me before you see me and that it's mm. like that introduction. Um, I hated – I think we've gotten past it now. We finally um, – it's a really interesting millennial – uh, factor was the the phone warning, you know, the advent of everybody getting phones, not just yeah. trade bankers. Suddenly when everybody had phones, um, everybody forgot to turn them off. And there was a good 10, 15 years there where shows were ruined by the fact that you'd go in and you'd sit down and you'd have the music playing and that music would be very intentionally chosen to be about this wonderful kind of mood that you were moving towards to get people in the right mood for whatever they were about to watch. And then just before it would start, you'd get a, welcome to the theatre and please turn off your phone. And so I wanted to find a way to fold that into the show itself and make it part of the way that it felt. The best one I'd ever seen, a couple of friends of mine who are clowns, built this great show 
and at the beginning of the show, a little spotlight came out, and there was a um, like a little chair, and there was a, a t- and they'd pop it out a little mobile phone, and it would sit there and go, and then a hammer would come out and just smash the shit out of it. Which <laughs> I thought was a, a really great way of just communicating the same thing inside the world of the show, so that the, it was all folded together and talked to yeah. itself in an interesting way. Um, now we don't do them anymore. I've only just realized that again, now that somewhere along the way there was a moratorium. Um, um, now pretty much if there's going to be anything before a show, it's an acknowledgement of country, um, mm. which I think is a much better thing to be putting before a show. Yes. And that frankly is important as opposed to turn off your phones. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, but tying that into the show was very much about um, warming up the audience too. Like if you're a lucky stand-up yeah. comedian, uh, you get to a point where you actually have some other poor stand-up comedian come in and prime your audience for you before you start. And in some ways what I wanted to do was that by myself, um, given that it's a solo show, which was about priming the audience to laugh before I even get there so that when I start, there's some easy laughs. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lucas, as um, our wonderful um, educational and teacher community listening, what would be one piece of advice that you would have for teachers about to embark teaching Boyko Walsh to their oh. students? <laughs> Advice. I would suggest, if anything, if you're going to approach it, um, I would suggest, number one, um, help your students out. By now, I mean, if people still know Winona Ryder from um, Stranger, Stranger Things. Things. Which is great. And she's still the love of my life but doesn't know it, But uh, <laughs> which is why one she's day. there. Um, but actually understand that those things are, yeah, right, one day I can dream. The whole... Christian Slater is going to be a bit of a long bow and so is pop up the volume and a lot of the things that get like it might help to actually um I mean the references are there for for people of my advanced years but um I I think they carry just simply because of what they are and in the same way that we're fortunate that generations these days don't actually require the thing just the reference of the thing to actually understand I think the Simpsons primed everybody for you know not needing to see the film so much as just know the references Mm-hmm. Um, which is another thing that happens all the way through the show. Um, I get that it's a reference. I'm not sure what it is, but it's funny anyway. Um, <laughs> the, ah, look, I, I read read it. Honestly, read the text because the text itself ha- actually has within it the descriptions of the action as well that actually give you some context. Um, and I'd suggest reading. It's, it's written to be read out loud. Um, so if, if you were to get sections and to play them out with a class, also get it up on its feet, do things with it. Yeah. See what yeah. set people the challenge of trying to do the sequence between wall, ceiling and floor and actually just going, bear in mind, this was written to be done by one person. This wasn't something yeah. that was written and then one person's tried to do it. These idiots painted themselves into these <laughs> before they started. And I think that's another, I think pretty much these idiots painted themselves into these corners is a great way to approach it with your class of going, um, imagine that you're a group of overly confident people in your twenties, which is like being an overly confident teenager only worse because now you've got disposable income and more freedom. Uh, imagine that you've gotten to this position in your lives where you're all mildly successful at what you do and then deciding to bite off far more than you can chew and see what you can do with it which is literally what we were all doing at the time was just challenging ourselves to try something as, as difficult as we could make it for all of us. Um, and then seeing how far we could push that Crayola caddy of stuff, like how far we could take all of the, like the, the, the whole box and dice and seeing what we could do with using as much of it as possible. Um, 
making a mess, but making a coherent mess, which I think was, yeah. the, was the, the, the challenge. Um, it's really funny. One of the original dramaturg, we, we had a, a, an invited dramaturg that I won't name because they are actually a brilliant person come yeah. in who hated, hated the original version of the show when uh. it was presented after the first development because it starts four times before it gets anywhere. <laughs> and they were, they, and they were literally just there going, how, how can, uh, it's like, it's got four beginnings. Like how, you can't do that. And it was that thing of going, yeah, we can watch this. We're just going to do it. Like, <laughs> We just did it, didn't you see? Yeah. There was four yeah. of them. Yeah, and, and it's going to happen again. Like, we're not changing it. Thanks for your <laughs> advice, but, you know, we're not changing it ever. It's 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 always going to be that. I think it was because um, they didn't particularly get the joke in terms of watch people try to tell a story and not get even past the first beat. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think a dramaturg's job is to actually make sure that it all coheres and gets to the end. So mm. that was always that that. The thing of going, no, no, we're not doing that. We're doing the We're not getting anywhere close to the end. Yeah, ever. Yeah, and I also think it's because, yet again, there's an inherent lie in wrapping something up at the end of it at that point um, that we wanted to talk about. Things don't end, right? The ending you get is that eventually one day um, the blood clot somewhere in your body hits your brain and you stop or, you know, or if you're unlucky, you walk into traffic. That's the ending you get. Um, That's the end. And then if you're lucky, you live on through the memory of other people, but that's it. Um, so I, I think it's uh, incredibly, incredibly, um, I don't know, disingenuous to kind of just wrap up at any other point. Um, so so why not actually make a point of not bothering stopping to just kind of like just hit a point and go, that's where we're finishing today um, because that's where we're up to. And mm-hmm. at the time in my life, that's where I was up to. Like, you know, I, I just met the love of my life a couple of years before that and gotten married. Um, which is another big influence behind the entire play is, is literally that moment of uh, in my late twenties, um, the kind of at a point where I was ready to meet the right person, meeting the right person. And I think, you know, really that is given that it is a play that was written by somebody in their late twenties, which is statistically, by the way, you know, people always talk about that fact. Like, it's a miracle. You know, you just, you know, around about that time, you just find the right person. No, you're just ready at that point. Um, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the shit drops away as well. And you're finally like, all right, I'm ready to meet somebody. I'm not going to play games anymore. Um, the, the, the person I meet now is, is going to be, it, it's, you know, Mr. All Miss right now um, is actually the right person at that time in that mm-hmm. context because you're ready. And, in the same way that Tom and Alethea are ready for each other, they are primed to meet that other person that's actually going to, you know, help make things work for them. Not yeah. in a way that's going to solve all their problems, because quite frankly, if you don't do your own work, you're in trouble and that relationship's not going to last. But just being ready. Yeah. And I think that was, that was where I had been just in my life as well, um, which I think is also a great message for teenagers to know is that the relationship they're in probably isn't the one that's going to last and probably shouldn't be the one that's going to last. But it's great to be caught up in the romance of it and to appreciate that at that point in your life, that person who you meet is the right person for that time. But yeah. then also be able to appreciate that. I think everybody can appreciate that. Um, yeah. And hopefully those are healthy things and that we're not projecting onto other people too. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, on that note... Um, I think that's a really great place for us to wrap up and um, stew on all of these wonderful things that we've heard today. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thank you for your time and for really unpacking that thought process. But also thank you so much for Boy Girl Wall. And I know a lot of teachers have cherished this text in their classroom uh, for so many years and now um, revisiting and reworking through this text for 
um, especially for this exam context that we're talking about today. Um, and I know that it is definitely a cherished text in our classroom. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for wanting to encourage and grow and let it live and be its thing. Um, also, please note, um, and little Marxist in me can't go any further without actually, you know, there's so much hidden labor behind this. I'm but one sixth of the entirety of this thing that was created. Mm. I'm fortunate to be the face of it, which means that I do get most of the accolades, but you know, Matthew and I co-wrote it. Um, it was co-devised with the other escapists, Keith Clark, Nerida Waters, Sarah Winter, Jonathan Oxlade. Like, um, it's entirely theirs as much as it's mine. It's just that I'm fortunate enough to have actually come up with a stupid original idea involving a, a boy or girl on the wall and being the one dumb enough to put up my hand to actually run around and do it. But that's only part of it. That's not all the hidden labour. Um, and yeah. all credit well, should go for them. Absolutely. There's some great videos um, when you purchase it on Vimeo. There's some really great videos of um, all of you talking about the process and unpacking that and talking about kind of how you got there. So we'll make a link to that in the show notes as well so that, you know, when teachers are exploring the text to make sure you watch all the, the videos of the behind the scenes and the creative process because it's really great to hear those, the insights from everybody else as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And please get in touch. Like um, anybody, literally anybody who is listening to this, who is wanting to actually work it with a class, um, get in touch. Um, I'm readily findable and available and I'm more than happy to actually talk to stuff and happy to do it most of the time, unless you want me to come into your classroom, in which case it's a workshop and you can pay me. But if it's actually <laughs> just, um, but if, if it's just simple things, like I'm more than happy to answer student questions. In fact, if you put together and I will always happily do this if you and your students put together a, a series of questions and put it in a single email I will quite happily spend 20 minutes making a response that actually just answers their questions um, it's never a problem for that kind of thing so yeah please feel free thank you that's so very generous of you that's not a problem. Look, uh, how are we ever going to get people engaged in, you know, what is a 2,200 to 400 year old dying art form unless we actually engage mm. young people in being the next group of people to become addicted to it? Yes. Boy, girl, wall, if nothing else, is a gateway drug. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, thank you again for giving up your time on this very early Saturday morning. Well, look, thank um, you to both of you for wanting to do this. I think it's a fabulous and wonderful thing, and I love the fact that you actually make these things so much more accessible to educators. I think it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, we just we just want to make sure that, you know, Drama Queensland is very proud of um the small hand that we had in helping this work come to light. Oh, look, it was one of those magical moments of literally being able to go to DQ at the time and go, I want to do this. And then being like, yeah, okay, no worries. <laughs> um, but yeah. And for an independent company to have that ability to, to actually go to, you know, a, you know, a larger body and be able mm. to go, we think education is important. I'm pretty sure you do too. Yeah. How about we get together? Oh, and big ups to Pixel Frame too, who are the other silent partner in this, who if you're ever looking to do anything um, remotely like this, folks, and you're listening to this, go to them. Lucas Thayer and the team, Jeff, and the rest of the team at Pixel Frame are bloody geniuses. Um, they're Brisbane-based. Uh, they have done so much great work for groups like uh, The Escapists and Debase and a whole ton of others. Mm. Um, they're one of the principal partners for Brisbane Festival and for Brisbane Powerhouse. They do a whole lot of archivals um, as well as an incredible amount of other media work, and I thoroughly recommend them. And yet again, I'm unfortunate enough and incestuous enough in terms of this that Lucas and I were both at QCA together at the same time. <laughs>
Oh, and finally, a brief shout out to the real Alethea Jones, who is actually a genuine and wonderful human being um, who does exist, who is named Alethea Jones, who is actually a director in America and who will eventually one day when we get to make the film actually direct the movie um, of Boy Girl War so that when it finishes, the last thing that you will see will be directed by Alethea Jones. Jones, oh, that's lovely. Which will hurt everybody's heads just slightly. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, thank you um, so much for joining us. Um, We appreciate all your insight. No, look, honestly, thanks. It's a pleasure to actually get to spend some time thinking about that show again. So (laughs) take care. We hope you have enjoyed part two of our Boy Girl Wall series, as this has been such a great opportunity to connect with Lucas about this work and hear all about the creative process behind this unique and intriguing work. Ensure that you check out the recorded live performance work, which can be purchased from the Drama Queensland Vimeo account, as well as the many educational resources created to accompany the show. And as Lucas said, be sure to reach out to Lucas personally if you need any additional support while engaging with this text with your students. (laughs) 